I have noticed the acceleration of a certain genre of social media post that is just ripe for a good Christian response. I want to give you that and a whole lot more on this week's Corey Act Show. I will indeed have for you a response to this growing genre of social media posts that I see, but I also have our weekly look at a hard-to-interpret Old Testament law. I have some teaching to do that I think would be helpful uh, about civics, governments, and uh, and what their, what their roles are. So just some general teaching that you might have forgotten from a history class or a government economics class. There are some things I need to remind you of and things that we, we need to work through, maybe even teach to our children. Uh, but we're going to start with a shooting in Jacksonville and the occasion that it gives us to talk about another ideology I've seen emerging on the internet. We'll do that in just a moment. Welcome to the Corey Truax Show, wherever you find podcasts. Amongst many things I get to do, one of my absolute favorites is serving the awesome people of Beachwood Church. Beachwood Church meets at 1030 on Sunday mornings in Greenville. You are invited. You can find more on the interwebs. You can just search for our name, Beachwood. It's got two E's in it. It's not like beach when you go to the beach. It's Beachwood, like the actual type of tree. Here we go. I certainly recognize all of the, the conservative media angst regarding the shooting in Jacksonville, just on the face, horrific story. If you somehow haven't heard, a mentally ill person who definitely also had absolutely ethnically prejudiced, we call that racist, I like to try to use more biblical language, ethnically prejudiced views, anti-black views, and both things are true. This person, much like the, uh, the, 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 sh- the killer of children in Nashville, was both mentally ill and found some dark ideology and ca- caused that person to kill. This person had mental illness and very destructive, sinful, racist views that ca- or ethnically prejudiced views that caused this killing. Killed three people and a Dollar General. Now... I uh, I get the again the conservative angst about media coverage and narrative and all that. I don't want to interact with that. There's plenty of other plenty of other talkers because there's no in, there's an endless supply of podcasts. There are plenty of talkers who will give you that. I'm not saying it's illegitimate. I, I am telling you that this has given me occasion to talk about something I've been wanting to talk about a little bit. So I've been into this world for a while now. This theonomy world where we are asserting that the Christian should want a general equity of God's law, God's thinking, that we should assert that in governments all over the world. Wherever a Christian lives, that's something they should be seeking out. And then a little bit more into that post-millennial world where we're optimistic. We, we think that the world can be better for our kids and grandkids if the church will do what it's supposed to, if men will take responsibility over their households, and if men and women will partner together in raising families, we can actually see good things happen. All right. So that as I get into that world, as you've heard me bemoan, sometimes the things that those people say, the people that I now identify with, sound insane. They say they sound they say things that might be biblically accurate, but in our modern world, sound radical and insane. Now, here's what I've noticed that's done. Some people that identify with 
those types of movements, theonomy in particular, the idea of God's laws needing to be in place at some level today, they do think some crazy things that are actually sinful things and wrong things, and now they feel emboldened to say them. So as some folks say, uh, what are some of the ones I bring up all the time, prisons are unbiblical, public schools are unbiblical, and your taxes are immoral. All right, so these all sound very radical and crazy. They all sound crazy and radical. Well, that's going to make feel emboldened some people who think actually really bad things. Here's what I noticed. There's a guy named Owen Strand. It's spelled S-T-R-A-C-H-A-N. I don't know why it's pronounced Strand, but it's, it looks like Strachan. He's on Twitter. You can go find him if you want. Owen Strand. He is in my theological tribe. He's one of the guys I've learned from. He's a little younger than I am, but I've, I've learned from him as I've made some adjustments to my own theological views. He is at a bit of a Twitter war in the last few weeks with some people who call themselves kinists. That's K-I-N-I-S-T-S, kinist. They are uh, purveyors of a theology or at least a, a system of thinking called kinism. I'm going to tell you about it in a minute. And he's doing a very effective, a very effective job of saying to them, uh, no, you are not associated with us. Your views are outside of orthodoxy. They are outside of, they're, they're, out, they're in sin. And so I, I want to respond to it because let's say you start going down the same rabbit trail I do. If you encounter these kinist people, I want you to equipped to respond to them. So, uh, and I think this deviates or at least, that's not the right word. It's emanates. That's a better word. This emanates from the Jacksonville shooting. As racism, as ethnic prejudice, drove that kind of action, it's going to be very important that we, the American church and churches around the world, are the people that teach clearly about what God thinks on ethnicity and what the world calls race. The, the Bible's view on race is that there actually is only one. There is one human race. We are all humans. Our pigmentations and cultures are different. Our ethnicities, that's the better biblical word, our ethnicities differ. And as I'll argue here in a minute, and God has no preference for any ethnicity. And I'll give you why in a minute. All right, so let's do kinism. What is it? These people believe in separating the ethnicities. They would, they would probably use that word. Maybe they would say race. They make these arguments that in the Old Testament, you have Genesis that says uh, that God made all of these land creatures after their own kind and that they associated with the same kind. They will use that term to imply that to ethnicity. They will talk about Old Testament laws where marriage was forbidden between, let's, let's go, the people of Israel and the, land, the people in the land of Canaan. And they will say, well, hey, if you guys are saying we're applying Old Testament law, well, we need to apply this one too. If you guys are out here saying you want, to, you want to apply criminal law from the Bible to the modern day, well, why not this one? Why not this law about not, not marrying outside your kind? What about the Genesis view of going after your own kind in marriage? That's their arguments. They are bad and unbiblical arguments. I want to give you at least three reasons why. One, God's concern was never ethnic. 
in those Old Testament laws, it was always about holiness and purity. Many of those Canaan, the people in Canaan, the promised land, were as morally deprived as child sacrifice being normal. They were at least worshiping false gods. And the concern for, of those commands was not that you not marry someone who doesn't look like you and your family, but that you would not defile God's people by bringing in false gods. Further, in the narrative of Genesis, when Abraham is called, he is immediately called and given a covenant and promise about how many peoples are going to come to Yahweh, come to the true God through through Abraham. It was never just going to be ethnic Judaism or ethnic Abraham. It was always going to be every tribe, tongue, nation. We see that completed in the New Testament in pictures throughout Revelation. As I preached through the Gospel of Mark, I saw that, that one of the radical things Jesus was doing was not staying in the Jewish areas, but going out into Gentile areas. Paul writes about this as, as well in several places. The plan was never one ethnos, one ethne, to, to be part of the people of God. That that Genesis narrative always included many types, types of people, because ultimately is only one race, which is going to bring me, you know, I'll go ahead and just make that second argument then. So number one, God's concern was never ethnic. Why? Well, because two, every human is made in God's image. There is no ethnicity more or less in God's image. Listen, if you are a certain, if you are a certain age listening to me, you might have grown up with some people older than you. That would imply that there are different aptitudes or skills or intellect based on ethnicity. And I want to refute that outright from the scriptures. I shouldn't, I mean, it, it feels like we shouldn't have to. But as I saw Owen Strand interact on Twitter, I found out, oh, I guess I have to say this. Say this to people who think they're associated with my some of my ideas. No, 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 no. The, the Bible has no place for your prejudice towards any ethnicity. Why? Because everyone's made in God's image. That should also place some pressure on you on how you interact with everybody every day. How you interact with that super annoying and needy person at work. How you interact with your spouse. How you even think about the person driving slowly in the left lane. talking to myself right now. Everybody I interact with is made in the image of God. Doesn't matter what they look like. So God's concerned promises were never ethnic. Why? Because everyone's made in God's image. And then I would just finish this with the Kenist people. If you're Jesus people, you got a real problem with Jesus. Just go read Matthew 1. Matthew 1 gives the genealogy of Jesus. That is not a purely Jewish line. In the, uh, in the language of Harry Potter, Jesus' ethnicity would be a muggle. Muggles, you either magic or you're, you have a parent that's magic and another parent that's not. Jesus has got all kinds of ethnicities wrapped up in his genealogy. And so I, I just want to say it out loud if you run into it. It's, it's one of the, call it the excesses or perversions of the argument around theonomy. And they're getting bold. They're in part getting bold because theonomists and pe- people that are in the world where I walk in now, they say, bold things that sound crazy, and it makes them, the Kenneth, say, oh, oh, so we're just saying what we think now. All right, well, here I, I'm going to go say this bold, and with them it's totally wrong. One last note on this. There has been talk on some segments of 
the internet, mostly, uh, mostly on the right of the American political spectrum, and certainly in some theological circles. I bring this up because I saw some of the literature, well, literature, some of the websites and blogs of these kinists would talk a good bit about something called the replacement theory. Uh, there's a there's a strain of thinking that there's a a conspiracy of some sort somehow to replace white people with other ethnicities. I don't want to respond to the conspiracy. I don't think it's well. I'm just going to say it's. I don't think it's well founded. It's not well documented. It's it's poorly argued. I, it's hard to argue with something that doesn't make much of an argument. It just makes an a. It's, it's one of my big pet peeves. It just makes an assertion. It asserts something, and you have to you have to build an argument, guys, if you want me to if you want me to respond to it. But I, even like um, more mainstream guys, like Matt Walsh, will, will dabble in this. That I think he would just say that American secular leftism hates white people and wants to see them eliminated. I don't know. Maybe there's some personal person or people on the fringes that think that's true. But I also want to make uh, I want to prepare the Christian for what what might be what the next hundred years, one hundred fifty years looks like in our country. The church is doing its biggest growth in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. One of the things we desperately need in the United States is more Christian people, thoroughly Christianized people. We can do that here through evangelism. And that will encompass and include all the ethnicities. But I think in my lifetime, I think in my oldest years, we are going to come to a conclusion as a country that our social safety nets and welfare systems are unsustainable because we didn't have enough kids, and we're going to need new blood. We're going to need blood transfusion to be healthy. That would mean looking around the world and bringing in new people that are not going to look like the majority of people have looked in the United States for most of the time. I don't care one way or the other what they actually look like. I am concerned for this, though. I'm concerned that we are bringing in Christianized thinkers. That might be the... Like, I'm just theorizing now. That could be the Lord's plan. I mean, we're, we're not the apple of God's eye. America is ultimately not important to God's plan. But what if that's what he chooses to do? We see mass, not mass, but very encouraging conversion in Latin America, South Korea, uh, even China and India. And then at crisis point, the United States needs new blood and they import a bunch of Christians and import a bunch of Christians who have Eastern mindsets. And so they're not as turned off by the Bible's laws and the Bible's thinking. And the country in crisis is just looking for people to come in and pay taxes for the social safety net. We look around the world and maybe we bring in mass migration of a Christian thinking people. I'm Listen to me, I'm in. I'm all the way in. And if you think, well, that'll dilute how many white people are in the country. I'm just saying, you got to quit that, man. I, bring all the Christians. Bring the Jesus-following, Bible-loving Christians from all over the world. I want them in my country. I want them to redeem their own countries, but I need them here. I'm outnumbered. I need reinforcements. You want to bring me a 
blood transfusion from a highly Christianized and Presbyterian, because it's mostly Presbyterian in Nigeria. You want to bring me more Presbyterians? Bring them my way, okay? You want to bring me some, listen, maybe not the NAR, the, what does the NAR stand for again? The New Apostolic Reformation. Maybe I don't want them, but if you want to bring me some charismatics, because it is mostly charismatics that are being converted in, in South Korea and other parts of Africa, bring them on. We'll, we'll teach them theology when, we, when they get here. This is, this is something I just want to put on your put on your horizon, that one of the ways that the church might actually get some reinforcements is bringing them from around the world, and we shouldn't just be okay with it. We should celebrate that. That's a good plan from the Lord. So there you go. I saw that uh, errant ideology and res- wanted to respond to it. We have been talking a lot lately about how we integrate good biblical law, good biblical justice, and how it's going to look in modern day. We, we are trying to think about how to apply that all these modern laws to the modern world as these chemists were not thinking well of. One of the ones I've talked about many, many times, because I think it's easier to understand, is there's law about what happens when your ox or your animal gores somebody and causes injury to them or to their property. That might not be a law that you concern yourselves with all that much, but in the modern world, you might have been gored by the oxes that we drive around. That's the at least the analogy I would give. And that analog, I would say, is that you might have been hurt in a car accident or someone you love has been hurt in a car accident. Maybe you've hurt yourself at work. These things have serious consequences. You come away injured, medical bills pile up, you've lost wages, and while you're trying to recover, not feeling well, you're trying to navigate this labyrinth of a process and trying to get justice. I don't want you to be intimidated by that process. Don't be scared. There are people out there to help you. The one I want to point you towards right now is an attorney here in Greenville. He's a personal friend of mine. His name is Samuel Harms. You can Google him. I hope that you will. It's Samuel Harms, as in stay out of harm's way, H-A-R-M-S. His number is 864-666-6666. He's Samuel Harms, attorney at law. I've seen these things cause a lot of struggle for people, a lot of hurt. I know when you have these kind of accidents, you need someone on your side to work through it. So reach out to him, Samuel Harms, in Greenville, Woodruff Road. Excuse me, he's near Woodruff Road, 33 Market Point Drive, Greenville, South Carolina, 29607. His number is 666-6666. If you have been gored by the modern-day ox, that is, hurt in a car accident, or someone you love has been, give Samuel Harms a call. Seriously, don't navigate it alone. Give him a call at 864-666-6666. Three more things I want to do today. This, uh, what what order is most logical? Actually, this order is better. I'm changing it on the spot. Another thing we are doing uh, as the church in America is having real discussions about what is the relationship between the Christian and the government and what things should we want government to do? I've noticed at least two things that I think are the hardest lifts and the hardest ones to talk about. By hardest lift, I mean the hardest thing to accomplish but also the hardest thing to say out loud. For example, the prison thing we've talked about. Okay, that's it's one thing to say uh, prisons are not a biblical idea, but man, that's I mean prisons are older than Jesus's earthly ministry. They're they've been around a long time. They are inculcated in humanity. Like we're talking about rolling back literally millennia of thinking. That's hard. When I hear folks that I love 
really denigrate the idea of government being involved in schools. I talked about it recently. It's it's on the Northwest Ordinance. Our country, this country, you can you can say it's a it's bad. It was sinful, but our country decided very early it is of government interest to fund schools. I mean, we we were doing it from the very earliest days. It wasn't from the federal level, but local and state governments were integral in education. And so we might we might you might say there well we need to be a prophetic voice to say. To, to the governments, well, you've been doing it wrong for 400 years. You're wrong. You've been in sin for 400 years. All right, I, I got you. But I, I want to at least do some teaching here on the system you do live in. Listen, here's, here's the struggle I'm having. A lot of believers really love America, maybe too much. A lot of believers who would say they love the Bible often hold the Constitution of the United States in almost as high esteem as they hold the Bible. And so when the if you start teaching some Bible that says the Constitution's wrong, that's going to cause some consternation. Listen, that's worth it. It's worth causing consternation if you're speaking the truth. But I want us to at least know what our documents say in the United States so that we know where the things conflict. Because I, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to denigrate. I think sometimes the arguments I hear on YouTube, on, on, on TikTok, they're just so black and white and so unnuanced that I, I don't, I, some, some of these people, I don't think have thought through all the implications of what they're saying. They're so caught up in saying what they think is true, they haven't thought through it totally. Let me just give you some, uh, an example. Here's some teaching. I want you, this is knowledge I think every American should have. I think it's knowledge that if your kid gets out of high school and doesn't know this, we got a real problem. We need to fix it. I want to ask this question. What is the federal government for? Remember your setup. You live in a town. Got probably got a county council or city council and a mayor. They have some responsibilities, very little. You move up some to your state legislature. If you're in South Carolina, 124 members of the House, 46 members of the Senate. You have your go- governor. They have the things that they do. And then you have a federal government. And over time, over our, what is that, 240 years? Our 240 years of actually being a constitutional republic, more and more power has left your mayor, your county council, your state legislature, and your governor, and all the power has rolled up, 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 up to the federal government. And we all bemoan that. We we say rightly, the, the, the federal government was is an entity that the states created. Like, don't think of your federal government as your country. I, I almost have gotten to the point of thinking about it like it's a company. But the states got together, the 13 originals, and said, we need to create a body. It's something different from us, but it can do some things that will help us be, be one people. But it is just an entity we're creating. It's not... It's not America itself. It's an entity of governance. And the states got together and created it. The thing that does the creating, listen, is always supreme. Whoever did the creating, that's take that to parenting. Parents are supreme over the kids. They, they made them. By, by right of creation, God owns you. By, by right of creation, the, the federal government should be, it once was, subservient to the states. The states were in charge because they created it. Now, that's done. We don't have that anymore. 
The federal government is supreme over the states, but the original design is that it would be subservient to the states because the states created it and should be able to dissolve it. The states should be able to come together and say to the federal government, you're done, and we're, we're going to replace you or we're not going to replace you. That's the original design, and I would argue a good design. Now, we say that there's some there's some calls for the uh, that the federal government is illegitimate, and it might be acting in an illegitimate way and doing some things it's not supposed to do. But I want you to hear this: you should read Article One, Section Eight of the Constitution, arguably the most important part of the Constitution. This is where they lay out, they specify, the federal government can do these things. We're giving it the, the permission to do these particular things. And then wonderfully, there is Tenth Amendment. Amendment 10 says, hey, anything we didn't cover, assume the states have it. So if we didn't cover it in the Articles of the Constitution, and if we didn't talk about it in the Bill of Rights, then assume the federal government has no say and just leave it to the states. And so you go to Article 1, Section 8, you read, these are the things the federal government can do. And now I know if it's not on this list, the federal government's not supposed to do it. All right, but let's see what they actually are given power to do. Number one, it says they, they have the right to lay taxes. I have heard all of the people like me theologically listening to some arguments and bemoaning taxes. I would say often saying that they're just straight up immoral. That's the, the libertarian meme, taxation is theft. All right. I just want to, I mean, if, if, if that's your biblical stance, okay, I, I need you to hear your, your, your founders that you love, the Constitution that you love, it does give the federal government power to tax. And then we, the people, in the 16th Amendment, gave the federal government power to tax our income. The, origi- the original version didn't have that, but we did do it as a people. You can argue, I would argue, we sinned, we were wrong, but we did give it to them. That's not illegitimate. The federal government has power to tax. Now, again, you could be a prophetic voice and say, well, you shouldn't have it. You shouldn't have power to tax. All right, but it does give them that power. It's in Article 1, Section 8, and that's what, it's like one of those things. We are, if you're making one point about taxation being immoral and unbiblical, we are saying the Constitution of the United States, as it was written, was a sinful document from the beginning. That's okay with me. I'm not married to the Constitution. I just need us to understand what we're saying and make sure we understand all the implications. Number two, it gives the right of the federal government to borrow money. We are right to, I've been using this word too much, bemoan. I don't like to use the word complain. We are, we are right to criticize that we are in too much debt. You know, it's actually Alexander Hamilton who had the, the musical done about him. He had this very good idea at the beginning. All the various states were in debt from the Revolutionary War. Different lenders everywhere. And we know how credit works, right? If you, if you have no credit, not bad credit, if you have no credit right now, then it's hard to get a credit card with a, with a, high, uh, with a high potential balance. It's hard to get a loan if you have zero credit. And so here, Hamilton was saying, we're creating this thing, this federal government, this entity. Let's let the federal government absorb the debts of the states and let us pay it. And as we, the federal government, pay the states' debts, we're going to gain a credit. The countries around the world will want to buy our bonds. The banks around the world will want to lend us money because we're showing we're credit worthy by paying our debts down. And in the process of creating the Constitution, we said to the federal government, you can borrow. 
I would argue that's good. The same way in your own life. It's good that you can borrow. It's, there's there's a, a very important role in the economy for banking and bankers and rolling interest and debt. All that has a role. It's not, if you have an argument, that if you think interest itself is a sin or credit is a, some kind of sin, I'm, I mean this, I'm open and teachable. I can be wrong. Gosh, I've learned a lot over the last couple of years that I was wrong about. But I want to say, the federal government was given power to tax. It was given power to borrow. It might be taxing wrongly or borrowing wrongly, but it was given that power. It was given power. Here's the one that kills me. The language in Clause 3 of that section, Article 1, Section 8, is to regulate commerce between the states. The Supreme Court has made a mockery of those words. It basically just means the federal government can do whatever it wants. I mean, it, it made a ruling in uh, 49, 48, I can't remember the year, that a man growing his own, I think it was potatoes, his own food, and then uh, and doing it in mass, selling it to his neighbors and taking care of his family, because he was doing it at a big enough scale, the federal government argued, well, you're messing up the market for those potatoes, or for, or for, the, for those crops. And so you're, you're hurting the price point for all of the other farmers, and so we're going to regulate you in a way. Now, he was saying in his own state. He wasn't even selling outside of state lines, but the Supreme Court said, your actions are affecting the larger market, and so we're going to make you burn your crops. And they did. They had to burn crops. They've, they've made a mockery of regulate commerce. But the federal government has been given some power to regulate how business is transacted between the states. They're given power over naturalization. We call that immigration now, but they're the ones that are given power over who can who can come into the country and how how they do it. The federal government does a very bad job of it, but it isn't that one actually isn't for the states. The states don't get to decide who gets to immigrate to to their state. The federal government does. We, we may we may hate that, but that's what the law is. They are given power in Article One, Section Eight, to make money, to mint money, print it, to make coins to punish counterfeiters of, of coins and money. They're given power to make post offices and roads. This is actually maybe the most important uh, the most important part of our Constitution for our for how we got so wealthy so quickly. We were, we were the first Constitution, and there's very few that have done it still, the first Constitution to put patents in there. The federal government has now created a system for you to patent your idea, to patent your invention so that you can make money off of it, that no one else can steal your idea or your intellectual property. It is for the federal government, was given to them, to protect that. They're also given the power to create courts and also to disintegrate courts. That's an important power. If the judiciary gets out of control, the federal government's Congress and the president can restructure courts and they can declare war. I might have missed some, but I wrote those down by memory. But the, that's just something I want you to wrestle with as we talk about what government should and should not do biblically. All right, well, just make sure you do know what your government's documents say it has a right to do. And then know your, know your role, how you might have to undo even the Constitution if you want to undo some of the things that governments do. Two more things. One, I've noticed this meme. I'll read you one version. So are we just supposed to eat, sleep, exercise, go to the bathroom, go to college, work 9 to 5 every day, travel two weeks out of the year, buy a house, and then have kids and die? That's the, the meme. just says that. 
I'll read it again. Are we just supposed to eat, sleep, exercise, go to the bathroom, go to college, work nine to five every day, travel two weeks out of the year, buy a house, and then have kids and die? I see this meme, people younger than me, go 30s and younger. I mean, I, I hurt for them. Especially since getting married. I mean, life is a lot more than eating, sleeping, exercising, getting a degree and working my job, getting two vacation, two weeks of vacation and buying a house. Rethinking the Genesis mandate to take dominion. I don't know, maybe, maybe this goes too far, but I don't think it does. I said this to my wife recently, and she agreed and seemed to seem to really be in on it, be to be affirming in the idea. So I'm given this command, take dominion over what the Lord's given me. All right, well, what he's given me, I was about to say my address out loud, but he's, he, uh, he's given me, let's call it 123 Main Street. He's given me this residence. I better take dominion of it. Take care of this woman and make sure she's got everything she needs. Take care of this house. Take care of our cars that he's given us. Take care of our animals. Take, take control of what this thing is supposed to be because God gave it to me and I want to do a really good job. I want to say back to him, hey, you gave us this kind of money. Here's what we did with it. I, I, I want to be faithful with it. I want to take dominion over what he's given me and I want to see it thrive and flourish. And man, when that's the case... I see this meme, are we just supposed to eat? Well, yeah, but you're supposed to eat in a way that says God is provider of all of my stuff and my body is so important because God gave me this body, the things that I eat, I'm going to be careful about it. Are we just supposed to eat, sleep, exercise, the person says? Yeah, you are supposed to eat and then get enough sleep and move your body enough because your heart and your lungs are a gift. There are too many people whose hearts and lungs don't work. Man, if yours are working, take dominion over your own heart, lungs, and make them work well. Watch what you eat. Sleep, exercise. Why? Because to the glory of God, I'll do those things. I'm not just eating, sleeping, and exercising. The, I have this good father who gave me this stuff. and I, th- Doing those things, how I eat, how I sleep, how I exercise, it can be glorifying to God because I'm just honoring him for the good gifts he gave me. Are we just supposed to go to college, the guy, this, this meme says? Not everybody, but are we supposed to get a, a, get a skill or an ability so that I can provide for myself and my family? It says go to work 9 to 5 every day. Yeah, I get to go to work only 9 to 5 every day? Like most people in human history are working 70 or 80 hours a week to provide just enough for them, just enough for a day. I, I work 9 to 5. I barely even work that. I get to have a very very cushy life and even save for retirement? Oh, man. And I get to go to work and use the skills and talents and abilities God gave me, honoring him and all that I do. What do you, whatever you do, eat or drink, do all the glory of God, work heartily as unto the Lord. It's not just going to work, but really doing something that can advance the kingdom. I get to go to work and talk highly about my church and the people that are in it and hold the church up high. For, for, uh, in contrast to those who hold it lowly, I get to go brag on my wife and talk about how awesome marriage is in a world where people denigrate marriage and will make fun of their spouses. Oh man, it's not just going to work. This is a different ball game altogether. Do I get to just travel two weeks out of the year? 
that's more travel than King George III probably did. And I'm just a nobody in easy South Carolina. Yeah, I can even go on vacation to the glory of God, see the creation that he made, look at an ocean and recognize God's vastness, look at the mountains and recognize his power. Yeah, I can go on vacation two times a year to the glory of God. Just He finishes there with buy a house, then have kids and die. Well, you missed the married part. Yes, to have your own space, your own piece of God's kingdom on earth, to raise kids for the next generation, connecting you to what will go on and on and on after you. Guys, there is a group of people, and I think it is at 30 and under crowd the most, they don't know why they're here. They're being told, yeah, take care of your body. Go to college, get a job, buy a house, get married and have kids. And they have this question, why? Why would I do that? Oh, man. We actually have an answer. Go after it for the glory of God. And because you'll have a legacy. The same way you're connected to what came before you are connected to what goes after you. I see it growing. And I want us to be prepared to talk about it. To give people a lot of hope. There's a lot of good reason to go live this life. Not just the American dream. The American dream is empty. But to go live the, the elements of the American dream for God's glory, man, go after it. All right. Finishing with our Old Testament law of the week. You're listening to the Corey Truax Show. Wherever you find podcasts, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for my weird name, Corey Truax. You can also email the show at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. I've got a good text from Brandon, good friend and listener to the show about a passage in Numbers 5. Numbers 5, verses 11 through 31, I think. I I want that listener to know, and for you all to know, I'm going to try to figure this out and teach it. I will admit my own befuddlement, my own confusion. Numbers 5, verses 11 through 31, at least right now, it is the most confusing thing I've ever read in the Bible. I I have no idea what it is. I want to come to you with some answers. And so he asked me this. I've also had someone else in my life ask in person, what is this? Like you said, the law is important. What is this thing in Numbers 5? The answer is, I don't know. I'm going to try to figure it out, and I will try to bring it to you. In the meantime, I'll stick with my plan. I wanted to talk about uh, one objection I've heard from atheists in the past about laws about slavery. It comes from Exodus 21. This is right after the Ten Commandments were given. And the argument I have heard is that uh, the the Bible is so enthralled with slavery, it so endorses slavery, that it even makes laws about how hard you can hit, or how hard you can punish your slaves. So I want to tackle that so that we understand, help helps us to understand Old Testament law. I don't fully know how to bring that into any kind of modern-day equity, what it might mean for us. And it might mean nothing for us. There's a possibility that it has no concept to bring forward, but it is important to know what your Bible says and to be able to defend it when it is being, uh, being, being attacked. So, Exodus 21, verse 20. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under the, that man's hand, the slave shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, the 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 I'd say owner, but the the person who that 
in the person who has that slave is not to be avenged. All right. That's an, that sounds odd, like giving a rule for how to, or what, what the consequences are to, to hitting your slave. It's almost as if it sounds like you can hit your slave with a rod. This person who is into your indentured servitude that you're, you're providing for as they work, you can hit them with a rod as long as you don't do so much damage that they can survive a day or two. Uh, after they that they can recover a day or two later, and that there will be no consequence for that for that owner for that patriarch or whatever you want to say that as long as a slave doesn't die. Well, let's get some context to it. You you got to skip to verse twenty six to get a little bit more information about how this whole relationship might work. Verse twenty six of Exodus twenty one. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys his eye, that owner shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If the owner knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, the owner shall let the slave go free because of of his tooth. So we have here this. If a if a man strikes his slave and like does some real damage, maybe even when he hits him with that rod, he hurts him in a in a way that is long-lasting. I, I suspect the actual case law on this would not just be specific to eye or tooth, but would work itself out as, if you are doing physical damage that lasts on a slave, that slave just gets to go. He gets to leave. You don't get to violate and abuse the the image of God that is on that person that you're supposed to be taking care of. You're supposed to be responsible for that person as they are working for you. You're supposed to treat them with honor and with care Doug, our pastor, said it said it profoundly. It's it's something I am going to say often now. Before a patriarch or someone in charge can can make a command, they have to show care. Care comes before command. It's having your responsibility to a person before you have a right to command them. I think it's yeah, that's how he said it. You have a responsibility to care before you have a right to command. And if this person is not showing a responsibility to care. They don't have a right to command and lord over this person, and so the slave just gets to go. So if I read those four verses together, here's what I get. So if a man strikes a slave and kills him, the owner dies. Like, the, if, he, if he strikes the, the man with the rod and the slave dies, well, it's, it's life for a life. That slave was made in the image of God has a great deal of honor, and you will die for what you've done to this slave. All right? Now, you have, and this is not racial slavery. Please, I didn't give the preamble. I, I'm hopeful this audience just knows now. This is not the same thing. It's an economic system of getting getting your debts expunged. It's a, whole, a bunch of ways you could put yourself into slavery. It's not the American racial slavery. The, the owner, in this case, strikes a slave... But he survives. He's able to get through it, and he can, after a day or two, be operable. What it sounds like in verses 26 and 27, that this slave now gets to leave. Because if the person, if the owner strikes him with a rod in a way that causes the injury to the eye or the tooth, the slave is now free of this abusive person. So if he kills the slave, the owner dies. And if he hurts the slave in a meaningful way, then the slave gets to leave. If you, there's not, a, there's not a defense of slavery in that. This is actually 
very different than the rest of the world. It's not as, let's call it, I hate to say the word enlightened here, but I can't think of one on the spot. It might not be as enlightened as the world you're living in, but as God is moving his people towards holiness, this is revolutionary in the ancient world where you could just kill your slave and go move on with your life. Not, not in God's economy. If you hurt this made-in-the-image-of-God person that is now in your care, you will die for it. And if you hurt them, they're probably going to go free. That's a different level of honor than you can expect anywhere in the ancient world. This ancient book is really revolutionary in that way. All right, that's your hard-to-interpret Old Testament law. I don't know when or if I'll ever be able to come to Numbers 5, verses 11 through 30, 31, whatever it is, and figure that out. I'll do my best. And as always, if you have comments or things you want covered or questions you have, you can reach me at CoreyTruaxShow at gmo.com, CoreyTruaxShow at gmo.com, or find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or Threads. I'd be glad to connect with you there. I'll be back with another new edition of the Corey Truax Show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.